Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. This recording starts after the session has already begun. Heather McTeer-Tony is the National Field Director for the Moms Clean Air Force. She was the regional administrator in the southeast region of EPA uh, under the Obama administration. Next to her, Guido Giorgente. He's, the founding, he's a founding board member of the Sunrise Movement. And we have Joe Pinion. He is the founder of Conservative Color Coalition and a spokesman for Republican, um, a Republican organization that, uh, that works on climate and energy issues. And finally, on our far right, Mandy Gunasekara. She is the founder of Energy 45 Fund and was the principal deputy assistant administrator at EPA uh, under the Trump administration. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. So just, just to set the stage briefly as we enter a discussion of the 2020 race, I mean, it seems like climate change is having a moment. Um, certainly in the primary, we're hearing in some ways more about climate change than ever before. Uh, there have been two major forums, one on CNN, one, one hosted by MSNBC. Um, in my lifetime, I can't remember seven hours of mostly thoughtful discussion of climate policy on national television. Um, and, and yet, for those of us who cover climate change, uh, I feel like every election cycle, we say to ourselves, is this the year that climate change matters? And every year, once it gets to the general election, it becomes 14th or 15th on the list of things that voters care about. So, so let's, let's start with this. Um, Guido, can you, can you start us? I mean, is this the year that climate change finally matters? Yeah, uh, thank you. Well, I guess we could start by saying if this is not the year that climate change matters, it's we're really in for a, a breakdown of the stable climate that human civilization has depended on. So there's a lot, a lot riding on it mattering. Um, I think that one indicator that this really might be the year, and one thing that we've looked at at Sunrise Movement is in 2016, in the lead up to that general election. There was already polling that a majority of, of Americans supported the government doing a lot or a great deal to reduce carbon emissions. And there was even polling showing, you know, if you asked, should the government reduce emissions even if that means limiting the development of oil, gas, and coal, you get like 60% saying yes. And yet still, there was six minutes spent on it at the, de at the debates in 2016. And I think it was exactly what you said. Climate change was always 13th, 14th, 15th on the list of what's the most important issue. So there was a breadth of support, but there was never an intensity of support that matched what you would see in jobs or healthcare, which are usually issues that dominate uh, in election. This year, I, I think you do really see a difference. Their polls are, are showing different measures on this, but pretty consistently, there's one poll that shows that 30% of Democrats say that climate change is their number one issue. Um, Climate is now consistently in the top three among Democratic voters. And I think you're seeing some reaction to that on the Republican side, where there's a feeling now that climate might be more of a mobilizing issue as opposed to a wedge issue or, or a liability. Um, 
So I think if climate can stay in that top three, there's a great chance that it's a top priority for the next administration. So I'm, I'm hopeful about that. I do think that's a big change, um, not in terms of breadth, but in terms of urgency and intensity and where voters are ranking the issue. Mandy, can you maybe I, I offer a conservative perspective on that? I mean, once this gets to the general election, do you think that this is an issue that general election voters will care as intensely about? I, Thank you for the question, and again, thank you for being here. Um, I think in the general election, um, it's not going to be a defining issue. Um, I, I do agree with Guido in the fact that it is certainly more prevalent in the discussion around policies, um, and I think people are talking more about it, but I was looking at some polls this morning, and yes, the polls indicate people are more aware, aware and engaged on these issues, but when you ask the question, when you get down to to some of the nuts and bolts of the policies of how this will impact your pocketbook. Um, pocketbook issues still matter to the majority of voters, which is why consistently and even to this day, jobs and the economy are the number one issue that going into the election is going to define where voters ultimately cast their decision. Um, that, that, that climate is a part of the discussion, but not necessarily going to be a defining element of what swings the election one way or the other. Heather, I mean, talk about this as, as a pocketbook issue. You work with families all over the country. How, as an election issue, do you work to connect the issue of climate change to the economic fortunes of families and, and you know, the things that they care about most, which are, you know, their health, their economic opportunities? No, absolutely, and thank you for that question. I think it does become the defining issue because as an elected, and, and I'm a former elected official, so I can speak I to have added that to your here. Violence, sorry. No. Um, <clears throat> everything becomes an issue when you come down to, to the actual voting booth in the day of. And that's the beautiful thing about what we're seeing about climate right now, is that climate is connected, and it's about how we talk about it. It's connected to each and every issue that we're experiencing. So our, our moms that are on the ground, we talk about climate and, and we're talking about the fact that they have to spend more money going to the hospital to take their children because they have asthma attacks. Um, the air pollution that's in the air that now becomes more and more prevalent, which costs them more days from work. It's always a pocketbook issue. I think the, the, the thing that we have to really think about is how are we couching this in the media. Uh, Manny makes an interesting point that it's not really going to be a top line issue if there are some other issues ahead of it. And what we're seeing right now is um, the conservatives have a really interesting way of putting other things as a top line issue and pushing climate to the bottom as opposed to wrapping climate in everything and that's what's happening and that's what we're doing. You cannot separate climate from homeland security, you cannot separate climate from healthcare, you cannot separate climate from gun safety, you cannot separate climate from any aspect of what any voter is dealing with. And the more and more we say that, the more and more people will realize that's the issue they have to vote on. Joe, I want to pull back for a moment with you. I mean, over the last several months, and, and Guido alluded to this, we've seen and heard Republicans talking, especially in Congress, talking about climate change in ways and in volumes that we haven't heard in a while, right? I mean, we, we've uh, seen Greg Walden, the, the ranking member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, discussing climate change. Senator John Barrasso has written op-eds now about climate change. 
Um, why? What's going on? Look, I, I think we're, we are experiencing a bit of a watershed. I think that, to your point, it is media driven. I think that we do um, have a disconnect in the media with what is actually happening on the ground when it comes to what I believe will be the future of the conservative movement. Um, and so you have the majority of individuals who are my age, you're talking about people who are 35 and under, um, who believe that climate change is a real issue, um, who want to see um, individuals that represent conservative ideals propose free market solutions to the issues that um, we know um, will be a major, major issue um, for the next generation. Um, but I do think that while most people in this room will accept the fact that climate is imbued in every issue, um, we must understand that while humanity cannot afford to ignore the climate crisis, that there are many Americans who cannot afford to prioritize it. And I think that it's very easy for us to sit here and say that, yes, we understand concretely that you have it, Jamal in, in Harlem who is trying to you know, figure out how to make their electric bill more affordable, and meanwhile, they're living in a building that is antiquated, and they're spending a ton of money on buildings you know, heating, the front, you know, heating the front lawn. You know, in the same time, you have individuals living in suburbs who are getting tax credits, right? And so that disconnect, right, that, that, that is rooted in a lack of social justice, but at the same time is also rooted in just the, the everyday economic realities of people, um, makes it very difficult, I think, for a lot of people um, who are, again, have 10 minutes every day to try to decipher what's going on in the news cycle, who you know, are literally trying to figure out how they're going to make ends meet when their disposable income a month is 1,200 and their bills are 2,000. Um, dealing with that type of economic pressure, um, those financial stresses on a day-to-day -day basis, um, I think is a large barrier that we don't talk about as far as why haven't we not made as much progress as we should have made on these issues. And, and you wrote a piece called, I'll just read the title, Climate Denial is Killing the, the GOP's Future. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> hey, explain that. Well, I, so I'll, uh, well, the piece I started off talking about, I think it was 2015, I was at the Young Conservatives for, uh, for Clean Energy uh, Conference. It's a conference that's held uh, every year. Um, robust group of young individuals who are excited about clean energy or excited about renewable energy. Um, and yet, these are things that, number one, aren't really covered in the media. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, Students for Carbon Dividends, a young conservative group that just recently went down to Capitol Hill um, and numbered in the hundreds with Frank Lunch talking about, uh, you know, the, the famous Republican pollster. Um, you, it would, it's very difficult to even know that it even happened because the media is not talking about it. Um, but I, I think to the point of the article that I was trying to make is that we have this kind of robust um, kind of older voice, right, that is that's still present in the room. That, like I said earlier, the vast majority of young people, millennials who are conservative, believe that climate change is a real thing, believe that we need to take that issue seriously and need to prioritize it. And the individuals, I call it kind of the the bombastic iteration of yesterday um, that are still kind of holding on to these, uh, these thoughts from their youth, this notion that it's all hooey. Um, what I call is the difference between, you know, disparaging what I you know, call the Al Gore gospel of, of, of global warming, um, accepting the scientific realities of climate change. And I think that that is, you know, how we speak about the issue. Um, also determines our ability to get through to people who are less inclined um, to want to accept those scientific realities. 
Mandy, I'd love to get your opinion on this. I mean, you've worked for an administration that questions the established science of climate change. Do you think that long term that is a threat to that climate denial is a threat to the Republican Party or is the Republican Party doing fine questioning climate science? So I, I would uh recharacterize the question. Um, I wouldn't say that, that the administration um, is of the de denialist ilk. Um, there is a clear recognition that um, there are some consensus elements around science, but that there's other more complex issues that we've been willing to lean in and engage on. Nonetheless, I think where it matters, um, this administration has been very proactive, and what Republicans are doing differently now is engaging in the communications front in, in, in a much more proactive way. Um, Republicans have been right on the policy and right on the law for a long time when you're talking about how to deal with environmental issues in a meaningful way, but they've taken a step back in terms of communicating about it. And because of that, this field of climate change and the field of environmental at least in, in a discussion realm, which is where most of the people um, in this room reside, has turned into a very divisive and uh, uh, not very pragmatic conversation. So what I would say is changing on the Republican side is being willing to engage and lean in on this issue and talk about the success story we actually have um, that, that we should celebrate and be proud of. And that's what this administration has done from the, from the start basically establishing the, the premise that you do not have to choose between a growing energy industry, a growing economy, and environmental protections. That is exactly what they've done across the board. Um, and, and the results bear out in terms of clean air, clean water, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and that's ultimately where it matters. Um, we have leadership in this space, and it's been borne out by the results, not necessarily by repeating, um, again, what, what I would say are unhelpful and, and divisive talking points um, that either reside in the scientific discussion, the policy discussion, or figuring out what actually, um, the, the, what, what, where the rubber meets the road and what the voters actually care about and how it impacts their day-to-day -day lives. Let's come back to some of that, but let's, let's, because <laughs> there's a lot there. <laughs> but, but let's start looking at some of the candidates. I mean, Guido, you represent the Sunrise Movement, um, which has, has, you know, been a, a force around, you know, arguably the most aggressive um, effort at framing how to address climate change, the Green New Deal. Um, now that Jay Inslee, the climate candidate, is out of the race, you know, tell me what you think generally of the candidates, the Democratic candidates, climate plans, who has sort of the most ambitious climate plan out there, and, and how do we, when we think about what is ambitious, what, what, what do we mean by that? Is it how much money you're willing to spend? Because they're all want to spend a lot of money. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I mean, broadly what I would say about the field, I think what's amazing is, I think there was this moment that happened um, a year ago now where the IPCC uh, report came out and said we're on track for catastrophic warming. Um, they were saying directly to policymakers, there's a part of that report that's like, here's a summary for policymakers, and that part says, the changes needed in sectors across the economy are far-reaching and unprecedented. They're saying directly to policymakers that you need to move very far, very quickly. And I think that 
Another part of that moment, which is maybe under-discussed, is that I think that President Trump leaving the Paris Accord and repealing, you know, at, at this point, I think it's 85 different in environmental uh, uh, protections, I think opened up a space for more people beyond just climate activists to say, oh, we're really not on track. And I think when Democrats retook the House and there was a protest um, of young people led by Sunrise Movement and others, and Nancy Pelosi's office saying, what's your plan? I think that really opened up the space to shift the conversation towards what the IPCC has been calling for, which is we need a plan that transitions our economy away from fossil fuels sector by sector that's comprehensive. So that's one thing I would say about the field that's so encouraging is that most of the leading candidates' plans and Jay Inslee's plans, I would say ambition is not just in the dollar amount, but it's in how comprehensive it is. That it's not, your plan is not taken seriously unless you have a, a plan for transportation, agriculture, manufacturing, getting off fossil fuels, public lands. I think that a dollar amount is part of ambition, and one way to talk about that would just be that even the most moderate, or moderate, or even the, the, the smallest plan in the democratic field is bigger than the progressive climate plans of 2015. And I think that's good. I think that that matches what the science is, is calling for. Um, and I think that ambition is also me measured in candidates' willingness to stand up to the industry and saying, yes, we're going to hold you responsible for pollution. Yes, we're going to hold you responsible for lying to the public about the science. Um, so I think I'll, I'll stop there. But um, yes, it's very encouraging. I don't think that any candidate has taken the the mantle of climate candidate in the way that Inslee has, maybe they will, um, but it's been moving in the right direction over the past year. And I should say, I mean, please feel free to, to jump in. I mean, I'd like this to sort of, you know, be as free-flowing a discussion as possible. So if there's, if other folks want to, to ring in on, on candidates' climate plans. Um, but Heather, I wanted, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you mentioned that a lot of other things always get in the way and, um, right now, gosh, what, what is it that I'm reading a lot about? Oh yeah, Ukraine. Ukraine seems to be, <laughs> impeachment seems to be sucking all of the energy um, out of the air. Is, I mean, does that, does that threaten to, you know, overtake climate change? Are groups like yours thinking and strategizing about how you keep climate change on the agenda at a time when, you know, it's fallen off the, the, you know, I'm not sure how often it was on the front pages in the first place, but fallen off the, the head of the news agenda? Well, I think that's a, it, it's a good point because it does go back to the whole idea of having to break through the noise on a constant basis because, and you know, this room understands working on news cycles and you have to hit whatever is the top thing that's coming through on that particular news cycle. I, at the same time, I think that it's important for all of us to understand distractions because a lot of this is, is set distractions. And moms, what we're trying to make sure we do, we do is we're staying in the room and staying at the forefront. Perfect example, next week, Dallas, Texas. EPA is holding a hearing on methane. We will be there. We have five families of mothers that are gonna be there front and center to provide testimony on these impacts to our children. It's our way of staying in the room and pushing it out via social media, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever it is we need to do to keep this at the top of the, the conversation. And I think that's what we're asking uh, everybody to do. And the way that we're doing that is working also on a local level. 
Um, while we, we understand that these are, are major federal regulations that we must constantly be a, a part of the conversation on, and I do want to come back to that uh, piece about the, what the administration is doing so wonderfully well. I, I'm going to respectfully degree, disagree with that. Um, <clears throat> but I think, you know, going to our local papers, that's what happens. We see our moms that are writing LTEs uh, to their local papers to talk about what's happening right there in their community, working with their mayors, who then they're in turn asking to work with their state governors and legislatures, who then they're asking to connect with their Congress members as we connect with their Congress members. It is always trying to find a way to push this up to the front of the conversation. And the way that we do that is by, again, keeping it at the forefront of the conversation. It's not going to be an easy task. However, I am very, very hopeful that as we move closer and closer to 2020 and to the election date, that um, more of this conversation will be wrapped into every other issue that's taking place. I'll add one more thing. The, the way that this typically gets attention, any major issue gets attention, is something, tr you know, some tragic tragedy happened. And as much as we hate to couch things in tragedy, it's our reality. And so unfortunately, we know that through the extreme weather events that happen all across this country over and over and over again, we see that face front and center. And that is one of the ways that you know those stories are coming out and being told, not just the climate impacts of the extreme weather event, but what happens when you have petrochemical facilities that don't put in air monitoring and there's a hurricane coming in? Ask the folks in Houston, Texas. You know, what happens when you have uh, an oil spill that happens off the Gulf of Mexico and you have the tourism industry that's hit hard? Ask the folks along Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida. It's when those incidents happen, those stories come out, that's what gets, people, gets people's attention and that's what people want to read and hear. Lisa, yeah. to add to something Heather said, um, in regards to, um, there were a lot of things brought up, but in regards to the relationship between local officials. So early on in this administration, this is one of the things we prioritized, um, was revamping that relationship from the federal government to state officials and not stopping at state officials, but going to regional municipality and all the many folks that are engaged in guiding, shaping, and make decisions when it comes to strategic um, environmental policies. And um, I can't tell you how many people, when we first walked in um, to EPA, how many different groups came in, and um, I, I experienced this personally a number of times, how many people walked in and said, wow, we've never been here. We've never been to the EPA. We've never felt like we had this type of access to engage directly with the EPA administrator or directly engage with the people who were making decisions, um, and not, not, not just people in DC, but the people who are from the state organizations that have significant amount of expertise and perspective that frankly a lot of them had felt ignored and pushed out by the last administration. Um, one of the case in points in that was the, the, the clean power plan. Um, a lot of the criticisms we heard from state air directors was that the administrator didn't listen to or take into account um, air directors input as they were developing some of these plans. And in that context of the Clean Air Act, it's the state air directors that are primarily responsible for implementing the directives coming
coming from the federal administration. So we revamped those relationships, tried to set up um, strategic engagement with industry partners. That's another piece that sometimes get criticism, but the thing about working closely with industry partners is that those are the, the sustainability and the engineering teams that can help us shape what we're doing in EPA to make sure that, that it's effective. Um, and, and so it's, it's good to hear um, folks talk about the local level because environmental policy, while a lot of it's discussed at the national level, the effectiveness of it is, is either successful or not um, dependent upon who is engaged in monitoring and following through at the local level. <laughs> So, so let's dig into some of the, the policies. And, and Joe, let me start with you, because a lot of your work is really focused on advocating for a carbon tax. Um, what we're, you know, we're, we've seen a number of the candidates call for some kind of price on carbon, but it is not the centerpiece of maybe, maybe one or two plans that I can think of offhand. Um, and I think we've also, tell me if, if I'm wrong, I think we've seen a lot of Democrats uh, sort of take a step back from the carbon pricing, uh, from a, a ta carbon tax idea. Why do you think that is? Is it just politically untenable? And does that make your job convincing Republicans to embrace a carbon tax harder? Well, I think, I mean, part, part of how I even met you, I think, I, you know, we had a conversation. I said, look, the, the hard truth for me is that the Green New Deal is literally the worst thing that's ever happened um, to me as it pertains to getting people on the right to take the issue of climate change seriously. Um, and I say that because uh, when you have, um, you know, what I call, you know, I, I say we, we have our own flamethrowers who like to um, be in denial of facts on my side of the aisle. Um, but on the other side of the aisle, we have individuals who are in denial of numbers. Um, and I think that when you have an issue that I think we all agree is central to the survival of humanity, I think is central um, to ensuring that the lifestyle that we have all become accustomed to um, can be passed on to the next generation. It, to me, all options have to be on the table. If you're telling me that you believe that climate change is the number one most important issue, then to me, why in God's name would you actually not meet people where they are? If you have a robust group or even a somewhat robust group of conservatives who say, I care about this issue as much as you care about this issue, and this is a solution that you have in the past said that you would be in favor of, and I'm saying that I can bring a, a critical mass of people um, to the table um, in conjunction with you on this issue around this point, why would you kind of basically decide at this, at this juncture to alienate that point? Um, so I think that that becomes um, frustrating um, on my end, trying to say that, you know, we have to be able to get together. I think that the issues that have always been able to endure, policy that lasts, um, has to start with people. If we say that the science is undeniable, um, if we say that the science is the science, then we can't lead with stats, we have to lead with people. Um, and I think that the, the issues that we have is while we can sit here on this stage and talk about the fact that, um, that this, these issues permeate everyday aspects of people's lives, you know, my father, my father was born and still lives in, in New Orleans, Louisiana. You know, and I can, I can go to the Seventh Ward right now, and no one in the Seventh Ward of New Orleans wants to hear about carbon. They want to hear about what are you doing to make sure the levees don't fail again. You know, 
And I say that as somebody, you know, I was a senior in college when Hurricane Katrina hit, you know, on a try, trying to play football at Colgate University and not knowing if my father was alive or dead. You know, you know, literally ran out the house with nothing but, you know, my grandfather's ashes in the bottle and the clothes in his back. Um, that, is the, that is the reality of climate change that we all must deal with, right? You know, act of God is an insurance term. Um, it means it's something that happens so infrequently that it actually cannot be predicted. Well, we can now predict that these things are going to keep happening over and over and over again. But we have to find a way to communicate it in a way that resonates with people's lives. And I just think that sometimes we get so caught up in the bubble about these are what the facts are um, that, you know, I think we spoke earlier that I can't demand that people care about climate change for the reasons I want them to care about climate change. And I think that's the biggest issue that we have in politics today, whether you're talking about Ukraine, whether you're talking about Russia, and yes, whether you're talking about climate change. I don't get to tell you why you should care about the issue, but I can find ways to connect that issue to your life and then allow that to be what is led with. I, you know, I, I, I appreciate what you're talking about because you know, I think there is a a level of, of injustice when it comes to communities of color in particular on climate change. But that is not the message that we hear on podiums on debate stages. That is not the message that we hear um, you know, from candidates that are going town to town and city to city. Um, it comes down to stats with them. It comes down to all of these things that are foreign to people that do not have the time to figure that out when they're trying to put food on their family's table. Um, and so that, that's kind of, you know, if there's one big takeaway and one big frustration from this year where we see climate change having a moment, where we can actually have seven hours of continuous television on climate change for the wonks, uh, the wonks around America, um, and you have millions of people tune in to watch it. Um, I, that, that's impressive. But how do we find a way to connect that to people in a way that resonates in the three to seven minute sound bites that we have on the hour, every hour? As someone who goes on TV you know, regularly, that's, that's all you get. That's all we have. Um, I just think that we have to really be much more attuned to that. I can feel the energy on the panel and everybody has something that they want to say, I think, about the Green New Deal or partially. Um, let me, let me, let me pause for a second and just follow up and ask you, though, Joe, would we be having this level of an amount of conversation about climate change this year were it not for the attention brought to it by the Green New Deal and advocates for that? So I think oh, the answer is uh, no. Um, but I also think that there was another way to talk about those issues that could have brought more people to the table. I think that any argument that you make in politics that truncates support amongst people who are already in lockstep with you is a terrible argument. Um, I think that you can find ways, um, you know, to me again, if climate change is the threat, the threat, why would we tether it to a federal jobs program, a, man, a, federal jobs, a national federal jobs program? Why would we tether it to universal health care? All of these things, which again, are issues that people care about. But if we're saying this is the issue, um, then why would we choose not to focus on it with a laser-like precision and also do it in a manner that brings the people along with you who are on another side of the aisle and we know that we need to have people on the other side of the aisle to get the job done? Okay. Don't worry. I'm going to get to everybody. 
But <laughs> I, I was going to say, you know, just to, <clears throat> I think, you know, Joe's pointed out some things that we, we agree on. Um, and that we certainly absolutely have to deal with. There are parts of this conversation that we agree we've got to get to this particular place, and it can be made more difficult simply by the language. I mean, it's reality. This is politics. Everybody's going to say that when their administration is on office, everybody's going to come in, and you know, it's the first thing. We've never been here before. I've, I've, I've been in politics 20-something years. It's what happens every single cycle, so that's nothing new. What is new, though, is how the conversation is couched. What is new is exactly what you're saying, is how we're trying to talk to each other inside of this bubble, and we're constantly torn apart. So, you know, like, I, I thought it was amazing. With moms, we had, we went to New Orleans for the National Baptist Convention. Typically, climate is not discussed as a major thing in the Baptist church. I am from Mississippi, traditional Baptist background. But I tell you, when I got before an, an organization of seven million African-American churchgoers, 3,000 women's boards members, and any people of color in here who know that the women's auxiliary is the mother's board of the church, when the mothers, the black mothers in the church start saying, baby, what is this climate thing you're talking about? <laughs> How can I get some more information on this? Tell me what I need to do. That's an indicator. That's an indicator that there's some of this conversation that's breaking through. And it's exactly to your, to your point, I think. It's, it's, we, we may be in different spaces in this, but oftentimes we get torn apart even more so because of how the, the language is couched in. So in moms, we call ourselves mom-partisan. We're not Republican, Democrat, we're mom-partisan. It's what our mamas want to do. It's what my, my three-year-old and my four, almost 14-year-old and 23-year-old, you know, looking at their future. But how we talk about it, I think is critically important, and making sure that we're conveners at this table as opposed to pulling us apart. Mandy, let me go to you first. I mean, is the Green New Deal the, the gift that keeps on giving for Republicans this election cycle? I, I think, yeah, if you talk to some of the, the politically minded folks out there, um, yes, you already see some of the attack ads that have certainly amped up, which um, you know I believe is going to be very difficult for some of the Democrats that are in districts that um, President Trump carried back in the 2016 election. And you're going to continue to see that amp up and play out. Um, I'll say from you know my perspective, I think the, the, the Green New Deal attracted a lot of attention, but I think it was the wrong kind of attention. Um, I, I think that that um, there's a lot of scientists at the agency I talked to, a lot of academics that I worked with, and folks at international forums I went to who engage in these issues, and they cringe at um, hyperbolic language and hyperbolic proposals like the Green New Deal because they think it, and rightfully so, I agree with this, it undercuts serious, thoughtful work that's actually going on. Um, it makes it much more difficult to having, have a meaningful discussion um, about some of the bipartisan and policies that have been discussed at the Environment and Public Works Committee in the Senate, at the Energy and Commerce Committee, the Natural Resources Committee. There are a number of bipartisan environmental uh, law, uh, sorry, bills, not laws, and um, bills that have gone through the process where people are engaging strategically and, and how do you make CO2 capture an additional revenue stream? Um, that's, that's a big question. And um, if you want to incentivize capturing it, um, there's a lot of thoughtful discussion on how best to do that in a way that doesn't assign unnecessary costs to energy, which forms the, the premise of and the, the success or not of the economy. And so a lot of this discussion is going on. I think the Green New 
deal has, um, you know, garnered a lot of attention, um, but I, I think it is in the wrong kind of way, and that it overshadows some of the more meaningful, thoughtful work that has occurred both inside and outside um, Republican circles in this administration. Guido, I'm going to give you the last word on the Green New Deal. If you could just respond to all of that. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, first, I'd like, Joe, I'm sorry that this has been so horrible for you. That was never our intention. Um, but uh, but uh, there's, so, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot there. So one, there's this, there's this, uh, there's this idea that comes up again and again that if only we spoke uh, the right way, um, uh, Republicans or, or conservatives would be coming on board. But oops, we used the wrong messaging and now we've sort of for, uh, for, foreclosed that possibility. And I felt, I think that the climate movement really learned a tough lesson on this all the way back in the Waxman-Markey fight, which is that we had climate advocates and the EDF and Democrats doing everything that they could to get it perfectly right, getting industry stakeholders and the coal industry and everyone at the table and trying to set targets that are going to work. And Theta Scotchpole, who's a political scientist at Harvard, did a great autopsy of why this failed. One reason it failed is because you can filibuster stuff in the Senate. But why didn't it get past that? And she talks about how the industry and um, opponents of climate legislation were able to play a double game where they can show up at the meeting and they can try to water down the targets or push back on some of the ambition. And then they can leave the meeting and fund ads and super PACs and a full-throated opposition campaign. Meanwhile, the climate advocates only have one arrow in the quiver, which is that they're just at the meeting trying to get all the stakeholders to work together, but they don't have um, a movement or, or a fight on, on their side. And I think what we learn from that is just to accept that there's going to be a fight and, and to not, not kid ourselves that the level of transformation needed is not going to have some opponents, especially in the industry. And that that's okay, because at this point, and I think this gets at other issues, I think what has felt difficult and, and unserious is that policies like a carbon tax, I think, can be part of a Green New Deal, absolutely. And a lot of the candidates who support a Green New Deal uh, have still confirmed that they're open to some kind of carbon pricing. But solely using a, a carbon tax to address the, the, the crisis, I think that that would have worked maybe two or three decades ago, when we had a much, much longer uh, runway to ramp down emissions. Now the rate at which we need to decarbonize to avert you know, 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius of warming is much, much more rapid. And that's what the IPCC is telling us. They're saying you need to cut global emissions in half by 2030. And if you're going to give developing nations a longer runway to do that, the US is going to need to get uh, to net zero much faster. Um, and at this point, I would say, you know, what the scientists are saying is probably not possible. Like, we, it, it's too late. Now we're in a situation where we're trying to do the best that we can to get to net zero as fast as possible. I think that the Green New Deal is incredibly helpful in, in that. One, because it puts the level of speed and scale that's necessary front and center, which we didn't have in the past. But I also think, and this is where I think we, we agree to some extent, um, I do agree that people are struggling and climate is not their first issue, that we had, you know, people don't have health care, people are working two or three jobs despite economic growth. Um, 
And I think that we've seen in countries like France, when you implement a climate policy that's solely focused on decarbonization, that is potentially uh, regressive or has uh, the potential to pass some of the costs totally onto consumers or to working class people, you can get a, a revolt. You can get something like the Yellow Vest movement. And I think that the genius of the Green New Deal is to say, not only do we not need to choose, but as Governor Pol as uh, Jared said, you know, these can be complements. As we are massively deploying clean energy, as we are um, upgrading buildings and building out mass transit, we can be creating millions of jobs. And the Green New Deal would make most of us better off securing clean air and clean water. So I think that it's been incredibly important. I think it's, it's, it's the path forward, and I think I'll close and just say it remains more popular than, than, than a carbon tax at this point. Um, despite all the negative coverage, a Green New Deal pulls above 60% right now, and a carbon tax pulls at around 50%. That may be surprising to us, but I think it's because a, a Green New Deal is saying to folks, you can have a better life, you can have a job, we can fix your community, we can guarantee clean water, and we can safeguard our future. Let me... It sounds like, looks like you want to respond, but let me just, uh, before I go to you, Joe, um, I'm going to start taking questions in a few minutes. If you have a question and want to begin lining up at one of the two microphones over here, I'll, I'll turn to you afterward, to the audience after. Joe. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that you know, I'm, I'm under no illusion that people have, particularly in the past, engaged in, in bad faith. Um, that people, like to your point, will show up at the meetings um, and will sit there and nod their head in the meeting while they're texting their political aid to fire up the, the negative attack ads on the very things they're trying to support. Um, like I said, this is a political panel. If it was a scientific panel, I wouldn't be on it. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, I think the one thing that I would push back on is to say that it was different this time in the sense of that there were and re there remains again, a robust group of individuals in the conservative movement who actually want to see progress on this issue. Um, and I think that there was a missed opportunity um, to engage in a bipartisan coalition amongst organizations um, that I think have a track record um, in saying that they are willing to speak truth to power um, that could have been more powerful, um, that could have not led us into what I believe is a moment for climate change, going down the same path that in many ways has led to, for better or worse, the unraveling of the Affordable Care Act, which is you end up with one, one party trying to shove something through in the manner that they saw fit. Uh, I just, I mean, I'm from New York, so I'll give you just a, just a kind of peel back. You know, we had a fight between Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo. Um, we wanted to have universal pre-K um, in New York City. Uh, Governor Cuomo said, we're going to put universal pre-K in the budget. And Mayor de Blasio said that that's not enough. We want to have universal pre-K in the budget through a tax on the top 1% of people who live in New York State. Um, and so it was one of those things where it was just like, if we can achieve, yes, there might be a, a different way for us to get that universal pre-K, and we might be able to get more money to be able to do other things we need to do around the state, like take care of nights of housing and things of that nature. But if we have individuals at the table who both want the same thing, and are saying that we can get both have what we want right now, and then continue to work together moving forward to figure out all the other stuff that we want to have together, I think that there is power in that, um, to be able to come together around those things. And I think that, um, you know, 
to me, when I said my life was made more difficult, I say that as someone who understands intuitively that there are individuals in my party that will have to be dragged kicking and screaming um, you know, to accept the things that we already accept. Um, and that job becomes much more difficult um, when something that should be nonpartisan, that should be mompartisan, um, becomes an intractable um, kind of partisan slugfest. Can, sure. One thing to add before we go to the first question. Um, the, I think the fatal flaw of both the Green New Deal and uh, from a carbon tax is that it's premised on making energy more expensive. Um, and regardless of how you do that, um, that comes with a host of unintended consequences. Um, it's regressive in the sense that it tends to impact those who can least afford increased energy cost the most. Um, there's been significant number of studies done. How do people in low income and fixed income communities react to increased energy cost. Um, they forego going to see the doctor. They forego taking medicine. They keep temperatures um, in the dead of winter at, at, um, at, at colder temperatures, and so they're more susceptible to, to getting sick. Um, there's also been a, a number of studies done in terms of, of globally. If we really want to have a global impact um, from an environmental perspective, the best thing we can do is come up with cost-effective solutions um, that maintain meeting current demand today, um, meeting future demand growth in terms of providing energy, but doing it in the most low-cost way. Um, people will adapt low-cost energy solutions. And if we make the price of energy in this country more expensive, um, either through uh, Green New Deal-type policies or through a carbon tax, that's going to undercut the ability of us to continue to produce the type of disruptive technologies that are actually going to be the answer to a, a lower emission future. We've already seen this in the natural gas space. Um, natural gas production has more than doubled since 1990, while emissions have significantly dropped um, to the tune of around 15%. And that's because of advances in hydraulic fracturing that have lowered the relative footprint. Um, and it is why the United States leads the world in terms of emission reduction. So I, I think that both of the, 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 the fatal flaw of both of those and why I would say, if I were giving a, a, an analysis of how this would play out um, on Capitol Hill, is that it's, it's DOA. Um, because voters, it's not just the representatives, it's the representatives that represent the voters. Voters do not like to pay more um, for something that they're not getting a, a, a tangible benefit for. Um, and Waxman Markey failed because it was the result of that Democrat process. Um, and the voters spoke to those that did vote in support of it, and a lot of those Democrat House members lost their seat, as well as some of the senators. If you don't so mind, Lisa, I, I have to respond to that. <clears throat> and Mandy, with all due respect, I understand what, what you're saying, putting out there, but that is simply not true. It's not true. And what happens is it's information like that that gets, keep, gets put into the sphere of voters all over this country and they believe rhetoric. It what, is, what, what did I say that's I, not true? I would love to see anything that you have, any scientific information, scientific fact information, that says that the U.S. global emissions has now dropped, that, that anything that says... That's from the International in, uh, Energy minute, Agency. Wait a minute, I'm not finished. <laughs> anything <clears throat> that promotes the fact that the energy costs would be increased 
Because what you just said is that any energy costs and, and low income and communities of color, of which I happen to be a member of, would be paying more money, not because we're moving to a renewable energy source, but because the energy companies would be passing it on to us. See, it, it is that, that little piece that you leave out about what happens to the people, about what's really going on in these scenarios and does not connect all the dots. And I know we have to get to the questions, okay. but I just wanted to make sure that, <laughs> this I, is that, fun too. I, <laughs> that I reiterated, this is what we fight on a regular basis because mothers come back and they, they hear the news that's been going around and these statements that are popping in and out of here and there, but the dots are never connected. The fact is that renewable energy will be a major difference and can actually lower prices for communities of color and vulnerable communities and communities like mine in Greenville, Mississippi, where I served as mayor, communities ha that have a 38% poverty rate, communities even where I live now in Oxford, Mississippi, where people can afford to pay for it, or in New York, or in New Mexico. If we sit down and actually talk about this like reasonable people, which means you do not pass this on to the ratepayer, but you figure out a way that we're able to put these costs in a position so that people are not paying for it and my children are not paying for it and we stop lying to the American public. I just, I, I want to respond really quick. I want, I want but, you to, I, no, I mean. I just, it's very important. So the, the nothing I said was, was rhetoric control. or misinformation. Um, the, the, the fact that the United States has reduced our greenhouse gas emissions more than any other country, that's, that's source. I can send you the report from IEA and from EIA. Um, both, and, and those are, those are nonpartisan, nonpolitical entities that just monitor what's going on what's going on in the world. And the other thing when it comes to price, the most important thing when it comes to price is access to baseload energy. And I'm not saying there isn't a role for renewables, but renewables were not created to provide baseload energy. And if you start replacing baseload energy sources, um, that's mostly natural gas, nuclear power, and coal power today, um, you're going to have major disruptions. And with that comes a relative cost increase. Um, I do agree, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the cost have been passed on from the companies to the ratepayers, but but that's that's the system that we're living in, um, and and I think that the most important thing that we can do in terms of maintaining a a baseline cost that um, doesn't have the unintended consequences is to maintain an adequate access to baseline energy sources because that is the one thing that can impact price swings um, the biggest. Let's let's open this up. Um, I'm going to remind folks that, that questions are for SEJ members and working journalists. Um, I'd love to ask folks when you ask a question to ask a question, not make a statement, and please identify yourselves. Let's, let's start over here on my left. Sure. I'm Christy George, independent journalist in Oregon. And uh, building on the theme of climate change touches everything, I'm wondering if anyone on the panel sees a relationship between Ukraine, Russia, uh, and the larger question of uh, drilling and fossil fuels to climate change? Uh, I'll say yes. Um, you know, it's funny, I, the, one of the stories of the year that people like to laugh about was when President Trump said we should buy Greenland. 
Um, and people were just laughing and yucking it up. And I said, well, that's not the craziest thing I've ever heard him saying. He's not the first one to say it. Um, because when you look at what's happening in, in the Arctic, when you look at the fact that little by little, as the ice starts to melt and we have you, the Russians starting to creep up a little bit over here and you, and you have your, your Ukrainians creeping up over here and all these little outposts that are, um, that are creeping up, the fact of the matter is, for me, America's been caught asleep at the wheel. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, if we are a people who say that we are going to be running out of essential resources from water to, to energy to all these things, um, that it should not also be out of the realm of possibility that we could end up at war with other nations over said uh, resources. So I, I think there's 100% the connection between the activity that we see in the Arctic, um, as you see people really playing 100-year games, making chess moves strategically um, to secure resources that we know if we do not change our behavior will become scarce. I was, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I, okay. I was going to just provide a quick answer. Um, I, I saw it. I, I, that's actually a really good point. I saw it from a little different perspective. Um, as a result of the activities that are now taking place, we have more troops that are being deployed into countries that are impacted by climate. And so I think it puts our troops in a position, um, our sons and daughters in a position where they are in places that are um, not only impacted by climate, but also in the United States, uh, in our defense budgets, there have been uh, drastic cuts to uh, a lot of our military installations that prevent them from responding to their own climate-related issues right here in the U.S. on base. So it leaves them ill-prepared, not only here in the U.S., but also to go and leave abroad. So when I think about issues like what's happening um, with Ukraine and the impeachment and now um, the requirement for our U.S. troops to be off, I think of another, again, way that climate is impacted um, and, and we are impacted as a result and how it's wrapped into that. And I would, I would say that, you know, yes, energy is hugely impactful to geopolitical stability. Um, and, and you see that play out. There's also, um, there's an environmental story to be told. Um, one big priority of this administration is expanding access to U.S. liquefied natural gas, LNG, which Ukraine is a recipient of. Um, and there's actually a new report that came out. Um, a couple weeks ago by the National Energy Technology Lab, Nettle, that did a life cycle analysis assessment of LNG, um, U.S. LNG being shipped to Asian markets and European markets compared to that coming from Russia and being shipped via pipeline. And actually the, the, the story, the, the punchline, is that um, Russian gas shipped to Asian markets has 47% higher emissions when compared to if they received U.S. LNG, and when it's shipped to European markets, it has 41% more emissions if that same area had received gas from, uh, or had received U.S. LNG. And so it goes to show that, yes, there's obviously huge implications for geopolitical stability um, because uh, stable access to energy can provide that, but also there's an environmental story to be, and, and benefits derived from expanding the use of U.S. Um, extracted, refined, and transported energy because we do it um, in the most efficient manner and consistent with the gold standard of environmental requirements, and that plays out in Nettle's latest life cycle analysis. 
This side over here. Hi, I'm Hillary Rosner. I'm an independent journalist. Um, this question is for Mandy. So you are obviously a supporter of the Trump administration's rollbacks of environmental policies, the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. Um, you are a chief architect of the decision to withdraw from the Paris Accords. And it's one thing to to support those policies, and it's another one to sit here and actually say that those things are making our air cleaner and our water cleaner. And I'm just wondering if you have any evidence to support that claim. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm glad you brought it up because it, it does get thrown around a lot. So yes, the president has engaged in a deregulatory agenda, but there's also been a regulatory agenda that has not received nearly as much attention. Um, a lot of the way that we approached uh, some of the priority regulations, so the Clean Power Plan, Methane Policy, CAFE, National Ambient Air Quality Standards, and permitting reform started from one of the president's first executive orders on energy independence, where he directed um, EPA and, and and other environmentally tangible agencies to look at these regulations and assess whether they should um, be repealed, amended, or replaced in some different capacity. And so we certainly underwent that. Um, exhibit A of, of how we've been successful in this was the um, affordable clean energy rule, ACE rule. Um, that was the replacement to the clean power plan. Um, now the clean power plan, remember, was stopped in its tracks before President Trump was even elected. The Supreme Court stopped it because it, it flew in the face of authorities um, under the Clean Air Act, and that was challenged, and it was stopped. So the Clean Power Plan achieved all of zero emission reductions, whereas under President Trump, we went back, we looked at what's, what's the extent of the law, how is it supposed to work, where are the areas that we can make the biggest impact, and what are the states and the state officials we should engage in a meaningful way to ensure that this is how it actually plays out. And all of that's encapsulated by the ACE rule, which is the first ever greenhouse gas emission standard um, set by any administration that's legally viable. And once implemented, it's projected to reduce energy-related CO2 emissions by 34%. So that's one example where, again, the last administration got a lot of credit, and there was a lot of fanfare around the clean power plan. But when you look at how it actually impacted the thing we all care about the most, which is emissions, it's the Trump administration that actually followed through with a proposal and a rule that's actually going to um, pass legal muster and be implemented and reduced emissions in the process. This side. Hey, uh, Mike Casey with Associated Press up in New England. Hey, Lisa. Um, this is a little bit off topic, but. Um, this is a question for everyone, but specifically um, Joe and Heather. How do we bring more diversity to the environmental movement and those that cover it? I'm so glad you asked that question. Let's start with the room. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's incumbent upon those of you who are sitting in this room to go back to your publications and people that you know, people of color who are in your general journalism classes and who are writers, who are independent writers, and encourage and promote and push them up to these places and seats in which you sit. There's no reason in the world when we're talking about climate justice as the social justice movement of our time that this room should not be reflective of that. And I don't know about you, Joe, but it's normally my experience as a woman of color who talks about environment um, from a progressive perspective from the state of Mississippi, people tend to think that I am a unicorn. I am not. There are a lot of us out there. 
and a lot of people, a lot of women of color, a lot of people of color who are not only talking but are acting on this issue right now. And we're writing about it. I had a piece that was in the New York Times about two months ago talking about women in color and actually naming women of color who are writing and doing this work. And moms, at Moms Clean uh, Air Force, at EDF, at EDF Action, I'm surrounded by people and people of diverse backgrounds um, from not only African-American but also Latino and Latino Latina and, and uh, indigenous people who are doing this work. They're out there. Go find them and bring them and sit them in this room. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would just kind of echo some of those uh, sentiments. I think when it comes to talking about the issue of climate change, I am invariably a brown face in a pale place. Um, that's just kind of how it goes. Um, and I think there are, there are a multitude of reasons for that. Um, you know, I mean, we see some of this in, with the organizations I work with, with Republican.org, is that um, some of the most beautiful places to visit um, and also some of the places most deeply impacted by climate change are also the most expensive to get to. Um, and so I think that also just being mindful of that as far as not just is the conference accessible, not just the cost of the conference itself, but just the ability to get somewhere um, is in and of itself a hurdle um, to just be in the room. If we know decisions are made by those who show up, um, we have to make it possible for people to be able to get to the door. Um, and so I think that that would be the one piece of advice that I would say to you is to, um, to find that balance, to be able to strike that balance in a way that we can meet people where they are because climate change affects people in urban cities and rural cities, poor, rich, and all, all across the entire spectrum. Over here on the right. Yeah, hi, my name is Teek with Newsy. Um, so historically, Democrats have talked about climate and environment in sort of moral terms, and Republicans have talked about it in dollars and cents. Sort of to reverse that, and this is um, part of it for Mandy, is do you see climate change as a crisis that involves a moral imperative, or is it purely dollars and cents? And on the flip side of that, for the Democratic side, why have Democrats sometimes had so much trouble talking dollars and cents with people? Well, I, I think it's a combination. Um, and, and I think that um, certainly dollars and cents tends to permeate the conversation because um, talking about doing things is great, but then how you're going to implement it and assessing the effectiveness um, is, is that much more important. Um, what's, what's the benefit of having an idea out there that um, creates the most perfect source of energy that nobody has access to and nobody can afford except a select few? Um, there's, so, so I would just say that um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a relative mix. Um, the, the moral imperative component, um, there's, there's a dollar component to that as well. Because again, going back to some of the things I said earlier about we shouldn't be imposing policies that make the price of energy more expensive. Um, because if you think globally, there are billions of people that don't have access to electricity. And the one thing that um, we could do in terms of providing access to electricity is lift people out of abject poverty. Um, there was a, a couple of studies I was looking at the other day that basically showed countries today that don't have access to electricity, there is, um, their lifespan is 20 years shorter on average. And so, yes, there's a moral imperative for us to try and bring 
um, and expand access to energy in a reliable way that can lift people out of abject poverty so that, that they can engage in the developed world and engaged in um, you know, developing the next latest and greatest technologies in whatever area, whether you're talking about ag or energy um, or, or general tech. Um, so it's, you know, in some, it's, it's a combination of both. Um, but I don't think you can ever get away from the dollars and cents because as policymakers, um, that's, that's something you have to successfully figure out to ensure that the policy decisions you make will ultimately be effective. Over here. Hi. Hi, my name's Emily Gertz. I'm an independent reporter based in New York. Um, I would just like to ask, um, the other members of the panel for their response to Ms. Gunsakara's comments on the effectiveness of the regulatory agenda of the Trump administration on, for instance, the air quality uh, in the communities that you're aware of. I'll start. <laughs> It, this, this administration at this point has rolled back 85. And as I said, you know, next week there's a, a, another hearing on mercury and air toxics. The idea is that there's going to be a, a shift in, in a change to the mercury and air toxics rule, the MATS standard. MATS is what protects um, unborn babies' brains from uh, mercury poisoning. poisoning. Carbon comes out through the coal plants and it can be breathed in. And it has already been shown that it can go through the placenta, impact a baby's brain, and you see, as a result, um, uh, brain disorders. Um, right now, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the majority of the industries, uh, NGOs, moms, have all said there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to change this standard. None. Yet and still, this administration feels the need to move it. And you have to ask the question, why? Why, if the businesses, the public, the consumers, everybody is saying and has written and said, no, no, you can leave this one alone. We're good. There's still a push to change it. And I think the devil is in the details. It comes down to looking at what's left in and what's left out. Because like, well, um, um, Mandy mentioned with, with the ACE that there was, um, they, they found that there was a way that this needed to be um, restructured, re-looked at. The administration said, hey, you need to go back and revise and, and see if there's something here that we can do better. What they changed and what they left out of their calculation was the health impact costs. They said there's no reason to count in the health impact costs here. That, that's just not true. That's yes, simply not is. true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, if you read, if you read the, well, I'm going to assume the that these proposal, are journalists so they can go and do the research. No, and, I, and find I know. For themselves. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Finish, finish yeah. and then we'll, we'll go okay. to Mandy. So th these are the types of little things. You have to look for the little changes because, again, we're asking ourselves, why in the world is this agency whose sole mission is the protection of human health and the environment? That's the mission of the Environmental Protection Agency. And the question was asked, not only what is happening with these re regulations and rollbacks, but what is, what's happening into communities? I was a regional administrator for eight southeastern states. Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, uh, and Kentucky. A quarter of the nation's populations and the most diverse in this country. Also, the place where you have more low-income communities than anywhere else in the nation. And so we go from the coastal land of the, of the Carolinas to the Kentucky coal mines. 
And I can tell you from being on the ground, not in Washington, D.C., but in the ground with those folks looking at the water that's coming out of those plants in, in Kentucky, from being on the ground with those families in Miami, from being on the ground with not only my home folks in Mississippi, but in the Carolinas, that it makes a difference when you have a coal plant that's located right on the fence, fence line of a community and the the impacts change, even though the organizations and these, the, the industry say, oh, we're not gonna change anything, we're doing it right, we're gonna keep doing it right, you don't have to worry about us. Talk to the folks who live there. I will give you one great example, and I'll do it very, very quickly. Birmingham, North Birmingham, Alabama, where they were located, African-American community located right on the fence line of a coke plant. And they would tell me, they said, you know, Heather, as administrator, you're coming through here when everything's nice and they're prepared for, your, for you to come through here. Come through here unexpected. Drive through one time when no one is expecting you to come through, when the industry has not already called to EPA to prepare for your arrival. And so I did that one time and I was in shock. I was in shock that the fact that the folks that the things that they had been saying for years was true. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not sitting here and telling you this information and sharing these things with you or in any way to, to be adverse against Mandy. We're both from the same state of Mississippi and we both love SEC football. So we're good. That's right. <laughs> but it just shows you the diversity in what is seen across this country when you're on two opposite sides and our media push is constantly giving us information. And we have to take the information that we have, that we give and what I live, put it together with the reports that are submitted and work with people on the ground to make educated decisions and informed decisions. And we rely on you all to do that. Mandy, let me give you a chance to respond mm -hmm. to some of the specifics here. Um, you were also involved in, in the Matt's mm -hmm. role. Um, but also broadly, I mean, speak to, you know, how does this EPA, how do you justify making it easier for new coal plants to be built and for existing coal plants to stay online at a time when the IPCC is telling us clearly that we need to dramatically rein in fossil fuels by mid-century, if not much sooner? So I, first, first back to the deregulatory agenda. Um, Deregulatory agenda does not mean setting aside the fulfillment of the missions of all the agencies, whether it's the Department of Interior, Department of Energy, or EPA, which is to protect public health and the environment. We took this very seriously. The problem is in the last administration, they got in the, the, the mode of regulating for the sake of regulating, where there were high costs and no tangible, meaningful impact on the back end of that. Um, and, and on mats, um, it's totally misconstruing what the administration is doing to suggest that they're paring back the mercury standard. They actually, we explicitly said that, you can read it. Um, you can download the regulatory text right now, um, explicitly state that that is not what the agency is doing. The agency is going back and looking at um, the appropriate and necessary finding, which is a prerequisite step in how the cost-benefit analysis was done. The cost-benefit analysis was done in a way that if that were to be adopted across the board, you could justify any regulation, not by talking about the benefits affiliated with reducing mercury, which there are well 
defined benefits to reducing mercury, so nobody's up here disagreeing with that. But if you aren't focusing on what are the benefits and the costs to the pollutant in question, you can get in this space where you're justifying a mercury reduction rule by focusing on benefits affiliated with another pollutant that is not the target of that specific action. In that instance, it was particulate matter. It's a, it's a wonky co-benefit issue, but I'm sure all of you understand it and that you've talked about it pretty extensively. So it's a, it's a misconception that um, the, this administration has been proposing to lower mercury standards um, on mats. I, I would... Um, okay. <laughs> so, let me let me let me do let me quickly bring because since we're we're talking about 2020, let me quickly just bring us back to the 2020 elections. Uh, quick down the line, if there is a question on climate or energy and environment that any of you would ask to the candidates, uh, there's a you know the debate coming up next week. Um, have at it, a candidate or all the candidates. So. Uh one thing I just want to close really quick is, you know, something that wasn't discussed today is the Andrew Wheeler had um, a, an event where he was talking about the lead and copper rule. Um, this is a regulatory action that has received very little attention um, that is actually updating a standard that has not been done in years. What, that was actually ignored by the last administration, which is part of the reason you had problems like the Flint crisis bubble up. Um, so my question, if I were to ask any of the Democrat candidates, is what of the president's regulatory actions, President Trump's regulatory actions, do you support? Yeah, I mean, I would say to me, uh, if we're talking about climate, uh, to talk to all the, the candidates next week and to say that if we believe that we are facing a, a human humanity crisis, level crisis, um, why are we not talking about a zero emission energy source such as nuclear, talking about making it safe and not trying to eliminate it if we understand that all options must and should be on the table. Um, and then also just talking about the fact that we have a lead water crisis uh, in America. And I know sometimes that gets pushed to the background when we talk about environmental issues. Um, but in places from Newark, New Jersey, to my hometown in Yonkers, we have children who are consuming uh, lead, <laughs> lead water every day. Um, and instead of fixing those pipes, instead of making sure that we're passing policies to do something about it, we've got schools bleeding the pipes to get the, you know, the, the particle amounts down. Um, so I think that if we can focus on those two issues, I think that would be helpful. Great. Guido? <clears throat> uh, I would ask, uh, many of you have committed to a Green New Deal or you have a climate plan. Climate change is an urgent threat, and the more we put off action, the worse it gets. So would you commit to passing a Green New Deal or passing your climate plan in the first year of your administration? And if you couldn't get everything you wanted to win in the first year, what policies within your plan would you prioritize for that first legislative session? Heather, close us out with one great question. One great question. Um, <clears throat> this administration has spent the past four years dividing us on a number of issues, including climate. How will you, on day one, be the American president and unite us around climate and give us something to implement within the first 100 days, what will that be? Please join me in giving a warm round of applause to all of our panelists. Thank you so much. <laughs>